All right, so uh, as you know, if you've been with us for a bit, we've been traveling through the Gospel of John. Uh, We're in John 6. And one of the things that happens in the Gospel of John is that uh, he's giving us signs. And these signs are meant to reveal who God is, who Jesus is, his heart for the kingdom. And, you know, in in the past, I've used the analogy of like on a long hike, uh, if you go into, let's say, the Sierras, and you're going through the big granite areas, often they have these cairns to help guide your path. Uh, Another analogy I was thinking of is like a puzzle. So the Gospel of John kind of functions like a puzzle. This is Firefly Friends puzzle. And the way it works, right, is you put the puzzle pieces out in front of you, and If you turn them over and you put them together, you get to see a picture that the puzzle is intending to communicate, right? If you've done a puzzle, you get that. What happens, though, is often in life, and what we'll see in the Gospels, is that John is giving us a puzzle. Let's call it Firefly Friends. But the people, the first century Jews, and even us today, we also have other puzzles, other ways of constructing our worldview, ways of making sense of the world. This is called pond pals, right? This is a a frog one, firefly one. And what happens is where things get thrown off is we take the puzzles that God has given us and we start mixing them and confusing them with the pieces, the puzzles that we learn through advertising, that we learn through our family environments, that we learn in all kinds of other environments, which then gives us a confusing picture of who God is and what his kingdom is like in the world. John offers us signs to reveal who Jesus is. And what we're going to see in chapter 6 is that Jesus is trying to explain this sign. So chapter 6 begins with uh, Jesus feeding this group of people. They're on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. I think there's a, a map of it. On the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, you see Bethsaida up there, maybe up there in that region. Jesus feeds this crowd of somewhere between, I don't know, the estimates, 5,000 men, so somewhere between 10 and 15,000 people. Feeds them up there. They want to make him king. He retreats. The disciples then get in their boat. They go from the east, northeast side to cross that tip over to Capernaum. As they're going through, there's this huge storm. Jesus walks on water, meets him on the boat, the storm ceases, and they arrive in Capernaum safely. Now, there's a group of people that are still on the eastern side. They, they don't know where Jesus is. They're not sure where the disciples went, right, at night. And they think, well, he probably went back to Capernaum. So now they make this journey over to Capernaum to try and find out where Jesus is. And that's where our text is going to pick up today. But normally what I do is I read through the whole scripture when we first start. Today what I'm going to do in a little different is I'm going to read through, there's like a number of questions and answers. It's this dialogue that unfolds, and we're going to start at this first chunk, their first question and Jesus' response. This is how it starts, 25 to 27. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I tell you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Right, so this crowd is coming, and Jesus is saying, Hey, you're confusing your puzzles. 
right? These are what the signs are meant to communicate, but you're focused on your bellies getting fed, right? This very material, physical way of looking at the world, right? So they're saying, hey, we're here, or Jesus is saying, you're here because your tummy got fed. You were hungry in the wild, and you're very focused on making sure you have your next meal. And Jesus is like, there's more going on, right? Specifically, he says, you know, hey, why don't you work for food that doesn't perish, right? You're working, for, you're working for food that perishes. I have food or there's food that you can work for that leads to eternal life. Now, when we pick up on this sort of, I don't know, idea, it can be a little confusing. So for us, right, if you go to work, you work for food that perishes, right? On some deep level. So when you go to work, you earn cash, right? That cash gets put in your bank account or whatever. You use that then to buy food that you feed your family with that literally perishes, right? So is Jesus saying don't work? Definitely not, right? So let's talk about what he is not saying because I think that'll help frame what he is saying. Jesus isn't saying quit your jobs, right? In the entire New Testament, there's a dignification of work, Paul says in Ephesians 4.28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Jesus is saying, no, work. And work so that you can actually gain perishable items, food, housing, uh, whatever, right? And part of earning it is so you can feed yourself, but maybe you even have some extra that you can share with others. Paul also says to the church at Thessalonica, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Right? There is this actual high value for work and what it earns us. Right? As creatures, we need shelter. We need food. We need basic things that money and work provide. More likely, when Jesus is talking about food that perishes and food that leads to eternal life, he's kind of leaning a little more into Matthew six nineteen. Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust consume and thieves break in and steal. And he's saying, don't invest too much in your material possessions or even immaterial things like prestige, power, status. Or like in our culture, there's this like really huge push right now uh, through uh, advertising, right? To actually really give yourself to experiences, Right? Like, you're going to be, your life is going to be awesome if you do this river cruise through this country in Europe, or your life is going to be awesome if you can go and have this adventure. Right? Huge push right now away from physical objects to experiences and accumulating those experiences. And Jesus is saying, hey, all that is food that perishes. Instead, he says, there's this guy, the Son of Man. Uh, which is going to offer food that doesn't perish. Now, he's not being super clear who this son of man is at that time, but they know it's an echo back to the book of Daniel, specifically chapter 7. Daniel pictures this guy, the son of man, who's going to come in the clouds and establish God's kingdom on earth in power. He's saying, this son of man, he's got the goods. He's going to bring the food. But the crowd isn't totally sure what's going on here, right? So in verses 20, 20, 28 to 33, they respond this way. So they say to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Right? They pick up on the, the work side versus the food side. Jesus answers them, this is the work of God that you may believe in whom he has sent. 
So they said to him, what sign do you do that we will see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Right, so this conversation is unfolding and they focus on, all right, so we either work for food that perishes or we work for food that leads to eternal life. So what work are we supposed to do? And Jesus gives them a little more of a concrete answer, right? Their work is to believe in the one the Father has sent. Now, what's interesting here is belief functions interestingly in our, in our world, right? You can believe that. So believing that is... I believe that one plus one equals two. Or I believe that, you know, if I toss this up in the air, it will come down. Right? That is believing that something is true. This could be information, could be a concept, whatever. What Jesus says here is he says, believe in. Believe in presumes trust, faith. Hey, I'm going to believe in this person, the one God has sent. I'm going to trust him that what he says is true. What's interesting, though, it says believe in, but then rather than sort of like taking this in, they go to sign. And this sign is then, hey, you know, Moses, remember, remember Moses, he brought bread from heaven. Do you remember that? And Jesus is probably thinking to himself, you know what's interesting? Like yesterday, I literally just did this, guys. Like what happened? They're so focused on their tummies, right? They miss out on the deeper spiritual significance that literally Jesus just provided bread in the wilderness. So he kind of sidesteps this and he focuses on sort of what they're missing in their very analogy. See, they're focused on Moses providing and he's saying, no, 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 you're missing it. Actually, Moses didn't really do much of anything at all. God is the one who did all of the bread provision. And while we're at it, right? He's like, the most important bread wasn't the bread that came from heaven, and it wasn't even the bread that I provided for you guys yesterday. Remember the one that filled your tummies? That wasn't the most important bread either. In fact, God sends someone, the one who is bread for humanity, who gives life to the world, which then leads to their next question. It's kind of part three in this dialogue. And I say end because this conversation is going to continue, but this is kind of the chunk of it. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. All right, so they focused on the food or the work. Now they're focused on the food and there's something beautiful about this, right? This is a good prayer. Give us the bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall not thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks 
on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. My verse 34, great prayer. Give us this bread always. That sounds great. And Jesus looks at them, right? They're gathered here like this. And he says, you know, he's kind of set them up for this. It's like, I am the bread of life. Which kind of reshapes their entire conversation. Come to me. Trust me. Feed on me. Draw life from me. And you will have food that endures for eternal life. That's what Jesus is saying to them. On a deeper level, you know, he's saying, don't give your life to food that perishes. Right? Specifically in that context, don't give your life for food that's going to fill your bellies. For us, right? Don't give your life to money and the things that money can buy. Food, clothing, shelter, tech gadgets, books, toys, sporting goods. Don't be driven by upward mobility, by big pay positions, those experiences that the marketers say will make or break the quality of your life. Don't seek food that perishes. Jesus says to them in that moment, seek first the kingdom. Seek first the bread that leads to eternal life. John Piper has this uh, really beautiful explanation he says about this passage. This is what he says. Here they are standing in front of the bread of life. Jesus Christ, the infinitely valuable, infinitely beautiful, all-satisfying, everlasting food that endures to eternal life, who gives eternal life. And they ask, what kind of works does God want us to do so that we can have the bread of life? And Jesus says, in essence, if you don't see the person standing in front of you for who he is, no amount of work is going to make him your treasure. You don't need to do any works. You need to taste and see, eat and believe. There's this beautiful moment. Jesus is coming before them saying, hey, I am all you need. The Father sent me, I am here. It sounds actually really similar to Isaiah 55. If you're familiar with Isaiah 55, he says this. Come, all who are thirsty, come to the waters. You who have no money, come, buy, eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me. Eat what is good and you will delight in the richest affair. Give ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. Right? This is the offer that Jesus is extending to that crowd. He knows that some of them are going to accept it and he knows that some of them are going to push away. Right? That's verse 36. But what's profoundly beautiful in my opinion in this passage Jesus says, those who come to me, those who hear, those who see, those who believe and trust, those, Jesus says, I will never cast away. He says, for those, I offer life, eternal life. Now, what's important here is to recognize that eternal life, sometimes we think in terms of, 
okay, so when I die, I won't, I'll live forever, right? And that's sort of an aspect, but we need to understand eternal life in terms of both quality and quantity of days. Big story, right? The big story is this. God created the world. He created us so that we could thrive and live and enjoy him and one another. We went our own way, right? Because of that, the fall, the brokenness of our world that we see around us exists. But God didn't leave us in that place of pain and brokenness. He sent his son, right, to be bread to the world, life to the world. That son, Jesus, is crucified. He's resurrected. He goes, ascends to be with the Father. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father right now, but he sends the Spirit to be with us, to form the church, and one day God is going to come again. This Jesus, this Son of Man, is going to come again and establish that kingdom. And when we get to that point, when God comes to extend, extend his kingdom on earth, we are going to experience that as eternal life in that kingdom. But until the fullness of the kingdom comes, what we experience now is increased quality of life with Jesus. Now, it doesn't mean that everything is perfect today. What it does mean, though, is that your life is going to be better than it was because you're with God the Father and that the peace and hope and love of the world is sitting next to you on that pew today saying, I am with you no matter what. So we see in this passage is that the Father has sent the Son to be the bread of life for the world. We see also that we have a choice. We can choose to give ourselves to food that perishes, that doesn't ultimately satisfy, or we can give ourselves to food that does lead to eternal life, that satisfies. And Jesus says that all that come, see, believe, trust, he will embrace and welcome in because the Father has sent those to him. And he says that when he welcomes us, we will eat of the bread that will satisfy and fulfill us. Now, the question I have at this point in the message, I think that's sort of the gist of what's going on in John 6, is then how does it translate into our context as we go to work in Marina or Salinas or PG or we're flying around the world? So what does it look like to actually lean into this passage for us today. The first thing I think I want to lean into is this idea of work and food. There's a clear connection in this passage. But I also know in our life, like, we are constantly bombarded with messages through advertisers, through media, through basically every medium of what does it look like for us to be satisfied and happy? Constantly. Right? Like, models are hired. Like the most beautiful and attractive men and women on earth are hired. They get these pictures taken of them. Then they're airbrushed. And then they're sent out for us to look at and long for and say, if we could just look as good as them, we would be okay. Vacation packages are sent to us. If only I could go to this lake or this beach in some remote part of the world. It looks so beautiful on this postcard. I'll be happy. And then we get there and we realize there's bugs, there's malaria, and there's all kinds of other things, right? We live in this culture where there's this hyper-realism, where we are sold these pictures of life that ultimately we think are going to satisfy, but don't. And into this world, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me 
who sees me, trusts in me, will not go hungry or thirsty again. Now, I wondered, as I read this passage, I was like, work? When I think of belief and work, I don't really sort of bring those together. But as I thought about it more, you know, if we think of belief more in terms of trust, I don't know, maybe for you, but for me, I realize actually trusting Jesus actually does take a lot of work. Even just on a very practical level. There's a myriad of voices in the world telling us what it means to be happy, what the good life is, what it looks like to really be satisfied. It takes work to crowd those voices over and say, okay, Jesus, what are you saying to me? It takes work to say that the scriptures are going to be the the narrative anchor that grounds us rather than all the other books and media and blogs and podcasts that we read. No, no, no. The scriptures are going to anchor us and we're going to prioritize them. We need to crowd out other things so that that voice speaks and grounds our life. It takes work. The good thing is, right, Jesus says it's work that pays well. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. It's a work that pays well. But I was also reflecting on this passage uh, this Friday. It's my Sabbath is Friday, and it took some time. I was reflecting on this passage, and I don't know about you, but I had to sort of have this like uh, subterranean narrative that I live into, and it kind of goes like this: that okay, if I just if I pray to Jesus, like, all my problems should go away. Like, if I just read the Bible enough, like, my pain, my suffering, everything should, like, be better. I should never thirst, right? I should never hunger. So sometimes I wonder, is something wrong with me? Like, am I doing this wrong? Because I do still hunger, and I do still thirst. And as I was thinking about it, I I was reminded of just sort of the now and not yet quality of the kingdom. The analogy that sort of came most intuitively to mind is if we imagine sort of the great feast at the end of history. This is the kingdom has come. The son of man has established his kingdom. All evil and darkness and brokenness is out of the world. And we imagine that as a great feast. Just this huge banquet. And Jesus is the bread of life at the table. Today, it's like the appetizer. It's good, man. It's good stuff. But there's still hunger in us that won't actually be satisfied until the great feast when God comes in the fullness of his kingdom. Jesus is the bread of life. And today, he wants to satisfy your hunger and thirst. But if you still have longing and hunger in you, that doesn't mean that you're doing it wrong. It means that you are hoping for a greater feast to come. That you were built and designed for that greater feast. Now, I do think, though, if we're going to sort of really get into the guts of work and food, we have to get kind of almost obnoxiously practical uh, for a minute. I think there's two ways to get kind of obnoxiously practical about this. So one, I think there's two ways essentially that we can sort of look into whether we are actually 
putting our lives, our hope, our trust into food that gives eternal life versus food that perishes. Time and money. So if you were to go through your last week with a fine-tooth comb and you were to say, okay, do I, if I looked at my actual calendar, am I giving a decent amount of time to listening to the voice of Jesus? Or am I just kind of running around filling my life and my body with food that perishes? If you were to look at the last week, or you actually see times when you are marinating in the scriptures, the narrative of hope that we sort of lean on, would you see like, oh yeah, I clearly am leaning towards food that gives life. Or do you find when you actually look at the practical ins and outs of your life that listening to the voice of Jesus and being in the scriptures is at best, you know, a second treasure in your life to everything else. And the second way I think we look at this, you know, Jesus says quite clearly, right, food that perishes, there's a material aspect to that. So I think it's really appropriate to then translate that in for us, for money, materialism, how do we accumulate things on earth versus investing in Jesus, our treasure? There's clear ways to do this. Like I think one is, you know, if you were to look over the last month, let's say, could you look at your bank account, your credit card, or your checkbook and say, I'm radically investing in God's kingdom in this place? I don't say this to be sort of, you know, like rub it in or something. I just think this is a practical expression of this text. And our credit card statements, checkbooks, and bank accounts, they don't lie. Are we investing? Jesus says this amazing comment in Matthew six twenty one. He says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. It's a pretty profound statement. And what he's actually saying is, Money moves the heart. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be. Now, if, if in me talking about money, you feel terribly uncomfortable and you're like, I wish you would move on to point number two, totally get it. Because one of the things in our culture, I have people come to me regularly that are like, hey, I'm struggling with porn or I had an affair or this. I can tell you on one hand the number of people that have come to me and said, you know what, this is how much I make and this is how much I give. I'd like to grow in sort of my financial giving. It never happens. <laughs> and the truth is, I bet if you thought for a second even of yourself today, is there anyone in your life who knows how much you make and how much you give? Anyone. Money, in my opinion, is one of the most defended spaces in church life. Because it's the space where we feel like it's ours, we earned it, and you did. But Jesus is saying, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And I think the question for us is, where do we want our heart to be? And I think in the very least, for a lot of us, it begins with honesty and transparency. Maybe you want to just even tell someone that you trust that is safe. This is where I'm at with giving. This is how much I make, this is how much I give. Can you just pray for me and help me discern God's invitation to me? Money is a tricky thing in our world and in our life. 
All right, so with that said, right, I think it's also important to add here that Jesus makes crazy clear that his acceptance does not hinge on our morality, on our generosity, our goodness, or the idolatry in our life. So no matter how you answer those practical questions, Jesus says this, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So no matter what you do with your money, no matter what you do with your time, Jesus says, if you come to me, if you look to me, if you give yourself to me, I will embrace and welcome you in as a child that I love. Verse 40, for this is the will of my Father. Whoever looks to the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Right? Jesus comes to earth to be the light and the life of the world. He wants to bring you life and me life, not because we're good, not because we have our act together, but because he loves us with a passionate and never-ending love. As I was sort of thinking about this passage and, you know, thinking about money and talking about money and time, and, you know, I sort of have this imagining that some of us, you know, are like, very uncomfortable with that, and it feels us, makes maybe we feel a little guilty or ashamed or whatever. And I had this just picture in my mind of a few of us this morning with kind of our heads tilted down, you know, sort of a classic shame response of like, I'm not going to look, I'm not going to look, you know. And we have a little bit of that with God. Well, if I look at him, is he going to punish me? If I look at him, is he going to judge me? Is he going to tell me that I am bad? And the picture in my mind was Jesus just coming up to you, sort of bending down and grabbing you by the chin and raising your head and saying, oh, I just love you. I think sometimes we need to let that in. We live in this world where we're evaluating ourselves and we feel evaluated based on our performance, our ability to pull things off, And Jesus says, no, 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 I love you. I am the bread of life. Feed on me. And Jesus won't turn us away. In fact, he welcomes us in, right? He wants to give us life. He says, I am the bread of life. Now, if you look at the gospel of John, you'll see John is constantly talking about life. John 1, Jesus is the light and the life of the world. John 3, the Son, right? God, the Father, loves the world so much, He gives His only begotten Son, right? Not to judge the world, right? But so that it can experience eternal life. John 4, He meets a woman at a well, and He says, you know what? I'm going to give you living water, water that wells up in you onto eternal life. John 5, The Father raises the dead, and Jesus, like his Father, brings life to those who are dying. Then John 6, what we're reading today, verse 37, Jesus comes down from heaven to give life to the world. Verse 40, the will of the Father is that everyone who looks upon the Son shall receive life, eternal life. God wants you right now to experience the life of his presence and his kingdom. 
And one day, when the king comes, we will experience that in its fullness. But I want to frame this idea of life a little bit because I think it can be a little confusing in the most individualistic and consumeristic culture on the face of the earth. We can sort of think about this primarily in terms of as an individual and a consumer, all right, I have my dreams. God is going to give me all my dreams. I don't think that's exactly what's going on here. God does have a plan for your life. He wants you to experience his goodness. But in the end, maybe it's better to think of it in, this, in these terms. Our life has a purpose within God's life-giving plan versus God is going to give me all the life and dreams that I seek. God created the world so we could experience life. He sent his son to die so that we could experience life. And he will come in the end through, the, through his kingdom so that we will experience life with him and peace with one another. But in the end, our life is a part of God's life-giving plan. God is not sort of a part of our plan so we can realize all of our dreams. Because the thing is, our dreams are often way worse than the plan God has for us. Jesus is saying in the first century, and I think saying to us today, that the center of the spiritual life is him. But that he is the bread of life. We can't earn it. All we can do is trust in it. And one of the ways I want us to focus on Jesus as the bread of life today is by celebrating communion together. So Jesus, you know, he sets a banquet for us, this place where we can experience his presence and his goodness. On the night he was gathered with his disciples, it was the, right before the Passover. They have bread and they have wine, they have other things. They don't have French baguettes, but we do. And he's sitting with them. They're breaking bread. They're hanging out together. And he says, you know, this is my body. It's going to be broken for you. Take and eat. Do it in remembrance of me. And he takes it, breaks it, passes it around so they can begin to eat and remember the bread of life. Now he's at the table and there's this bread. He also takes up a cup. And he said, this cup, this wine, this is my blood, which will be shed for you and for all so that sins may be forgiven. So all those moments when our head is cast down and we feel ashamed and we want to remove ourselves from the presence of Jesus, he says, yeah, eat the bread, drink this cup so you know that I've given myself in love for you. Jesus invited the church to do communion as a way to remember him. 
And as a body, one of the reasons we do that, and one of the reasons we stand up and move forward as a corporate entity is to say, hey, as a body, we don't just seek Jesus individually, but as a whole community, we come forward to be with him. And we come forward to commune with the risen king to remember the extent of his sacrifice, the goodness of his presence, to remember at the deepest level of our being that he is the bread of life, that he is food that endures to eternal life.